Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 187 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Yes, 187. If memory serves, that was the cop radio lingo code for a murder. And I suppose it is somewhat appropriate because we are going to continue to murder the memory and reputation of one Thomas Woodrow Wilson. This time, we're going to continue to talk mostly kind of biographically and chronologically, and we're going to be talking about Wilson's life events during most of his time in academia, from earning his PhD through his years as a professor. And we won't go super in-depth into the actual content of his academic work in this one, though I'm sure we'll probably mention it a little bit in passing. But in the episode after next, what'll end up being now part four in this series, that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to drill down into the content of Wilson's academic work because it's very interesting and also very important, I think, to understanding his presidency. This episode was originally going to also include coverage of Wilson's tenure as president of Princeton University, so it was going to cover his entire time in academia, his entire career there, including his eight years as president of Princeton. But the episode was becoming so big that I decided to detach that phase of his career into its own episode, which is going to be part three. So as of now, my plan is Woodrow Wilson part three is going to cover his time as president of Princeton, and Woodrow Wilson Part 4 is going to dig into the actual content of his academic work to try and dissect and understand and, of course, vehemently critique his ideas. Because, again, these are important aspects of who he was and why he did what he did when he eventually became President of the United States. So, here we go into Part 2 of DHP Villains Woodrow Wilson covering Professor Wilson. last left off Woodrow Wilson, he had just spent some very, very miserable time as an attorney and didn't like it and didn't do well at it and so forth, and had just made the decision that he was going to go back to school and try and get a PhD at Johns Hopkins University. So, in 1883, Wilson applied and was accepted for graduate studies at Johns Hopkins University. This university was modeled after the German universities of the time, and much of its faculty had gotten at least some of their postgraduate education at German universities. This was actually the first university in America to be founded as a research university on the German model. Johns Hopkins, if you don't know, was named after its founder, who was a Quaker businessman named Johns Hopkins. Yes, not John Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. And this guy had made a fortune investing in railroads and had left half of his fortune in his will to found the university. On his application to the school, in answer to a question about his goals, Wilson had written, quote, My purpose in coming to the university is to qualify myself for teaching the studies I wish to pursue, namely history and political science. End quote. To his wife, he wrote, quote, A professorship was the only feasible place for me. The only place that would afford leisure for reading and for original work. The only strictly literary birth with an income attached. End quote. Wilson's professors at Johns Hopkins included many of what you might think of as kind of the intellectual founding fathers 
of what would become known as American progressivism, or what I would call progressivism 1.0, kind of the original version, which has been modified into several other versions since then, although a lot of the core large principles remain the same. And basically, in my mind, American progressivism 1.0 was in many ways just a mixture of the major German intellectual trends of the mid to late 19th century, things like Hegelianism. Wilson's professors at Johns Hopkins included men like Herbert Baxter Adams, who taught Wilson international relations, and Richard T. Ely, who taught Wilson advanced political economy. Now, I'm going to talk about each of those two guys in turn because they're each interesting figures. Henry Baxter Adams had attended Phillips Exeter Academy and Amherst College before getting his PhD from the University of Heidelberg, after which he was hired at Johns Hopkins. Adams was an Anglo-Saxonist, like many other American academic historians of this time period, including his fellow Massachusetts man, Henry Cabot Lodge. So, this meant that he believed that American democracy could be traced back to the Anglo-Saxons of Old England, and thus ultimately to German, or Teutonic as they would often say at the time, origins. Anglo-Saxonists of this time period tended to believe that only certain races, basically Northern European kind of Aryan types, everybody in Northern Europe other than uh, the Celts, that these were the only races capable of democratic self-government. And then, of course, this has all, all sorts of implications for things like legitimizing the British Empire, legitimizing potential American imperialism, and so forth. Because, of course, you're taking over these poor inferior races who can't govern themselves, and so you're actually doing a benevolent thing by ruling over them. In 1884, which would have been during Wilson's time at Johns Hopkins, Herbert Baxter Adams was actually one of the founders of the American Historical Association, which is still the biggest professional association of academic historians in the United States to this day. And in terms of teaching, Adams held a seminar that was a centerpiece of the program that Wilson was in. Wilson biographer A. Scott Berg describes this seminar as follows, quote, on Friday nights between 8 and 10 o'clock, faculty and graduate students gathered in a former biology building, which had become the repository for the archives of Johann Kaspar Bluntschilly, a professor of international law and Adams's mentor from Heidelberg. From the end of a massive red table that could seat two dozen, Professor Adams presided over free-form discussions, which included students sharing their writings and ideas for group consideration and correction. End quote. However, Berg says, quote, although a hotbed of political ideas, the seminar left Wilson strangely cold, end quote. And it's not 100% clear why it may in part have been Wilson's personality. He was kind of standoffish and oftentimes not the most gregarious sort, especially with men. He seems to have been more comfortable socializing with women than with men. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's also that he'd rather be doing something else in terms of his own writings or something. Now, according to Berg, Wilson pretty quickly decided that one's real education in graduate school ultimately had to come from the reading and research that you did on your own, not as part of a formal class. And as Wilson himself once put it, quote, Everything of progress comes from one's private reading, not from lectures. Professors can give you always copious bibliographies and sometimes inspiration or suggestion, but never learning, end quote. Interestingly, even though I obviously come from a very different place psychologically and ideologically than Wilson, I actually had a pretty similar experience in graduate school in terms of often, not always, but often being kind of blah about the actual seminar classes I went to and actually getting more out of the time I spent on my own initiative prowling the stacks of the library, going way off the reservation. But anyway, so that's a little bit on Herbert Baxter Adams and who he was. Now, let me mention a little bit about Richard T. Ely. Richard T. Ely's education had included bachelor's and master's degrees from Columbia University. And then, like Adams, he had gotten a PhD from the University of Heidelberg, after which he taught at Johns Hopkins for over a decade. He's generally considered the leading progressive economist of this time period. 
and he claimed to be opposed to socialism and described his ideological views as somewhere between laissez-faire free market economics and full-on classical socialism in the sense of, you know, outright state ownership of the means of production. However, he was closely allied with and associated with and worked with in various ways social gospel people, many of whom would describe themselves as Christian socialists or something along those lines. So Ely wasn't, say, a Marxist or a communist, but he certainly wanted a rather interventionist economic policy. And it's pretty easy to see his influence on Woodrow Wilson's economic policies once Wilson became president of the United States. Interesting little side note, during America's participation in World War I, most of the big progressive intellectuals strongly supported the war. And the minority of progressive intellectuals who opposed the war ended up taking a lot of heat, and some of the most vicious attacks they took came from the pro-war progressives. And Ely was one of those pro-war progressives leading the charge against the anti-war dissenters. Now, during World War I, Ely was no longer at Johns Hopkins, he was teaching at the University of Wisconsin, and one of his primary targets to attack for being anti-war was Wisconsin Senator Robert La Follette, who was a progressive Republican. La Follette had been a leading progressive for many years at that point, but when the war came along, he was staunchly anti-war and against all the stuff that went along with it, like the draft and the suppression of civil liberties, all those sorts of things. He was excellent on those issues, as far as I'm concerned. And Ely led a campaign that was ultimately unsuccessful, but he tried hard to try to get La Follette declared unfit for office and removed from the U.S. Senate because of his anti-war stance. So that's the kind of person Ely was. He tried to get a senator removed from the Senate for dissenting from the war. By the way, I'm planning on eventually doing a bonus episode, perhaps even a very small mini-series, for supporters of the DHP at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level and higher on Subscribestar and Patreon. That'll be kind of like a DHP hero spotlight on La Follette to sort of be the flip side of Woodrow Wilson, like here's an actually pretty good progressive. I find La Follette very, very interesting as a political figure and historical figure, and I've started to accumulate some sources on him, and in my opinion, he's one of the better progressives from this time period. Now, even though obviously those of you who've listened to much of my work would guess I wouldn't agree with a lot of Lafollette's economic ideas, in my mind, he's a huge contrast to the kind of statist, pro-war, corporatist progressives like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And as far as I can tell, at least at this point from what I've looked up on him, La Follette was an honest man of good intentions who started off his career as a typical Gilded Age Republican in almost every regard, but who over time not only became more progressive on domestic policies, but more interesting and important in my mind at least, he became a very strong anti-war and anti-imperialist voice in the U.S. Senate. So he became dead right on what I see as the most important issues. And as far as his economic policies go, he was an actual honest progressive in my mind, who really was trying to rein in corporate abuses, unlike T.R. and Woodrow Wilson, who kind of both in different ways ran cover for and enabled many of the corporate interests that they liked to claim they were standing up to on behalf of the little guy. So it seems to me that in American progressivism version 1.0, this time period of the late 19th and early 20th century, just like in American progressivism of today, which I would probably call version 4.0, there were sort of two types of progressives. There were the pro-war ones who were more in bed with the establishment, who were actually, sometimes knowingly and sometimes perhaps unknowingly, really serving the interests of the big corporations. And then there are the anti-war progressives, who are at least as far as their perspective, trying to be independent and principled and not just be corporate tools. So it's sort of like the difference today between, say, somebody like, I don't know, Hillary Clinton and somebody like Tulsi Gabbard. Obviously, while I wouldn't fully endorse either and wouldn't support either or vote for either, I would find the latter much, much preferable to the former and, and less reprehensible and evil and dangerous. 
So Woodrow Wilson would be a Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama type in the progressivism 1.0 context, and Robert LaFollette would be uh, Tulsi Gabbard, maybe a Ralph Nader type in the progressivism 1.0 context. Anyway, back to Ely. Here's a statement from Richard Ely in 1886, just after Wilson's time at Johns Hopkins, at the founding of the American Economics Association, which Ely was a founder of. And Ely said the following, quote, We regard the state as an educational and ethical agency whose positive aid is an indispensable condition of human progress. While we recognize the necessity of individual initiative in industrial life, we hold that the doctrine of laissez-faire is unsafe in politics and unsound in morals, and that it suggests an inadequate explanation of the relations between the state and the citizens. End quote. So the American Economics Association, which is still, as far as I know, the top professional association in the U.S. for professional academic economists, was founded along explicit ideological lines that were statists and vehemently anti-free market, despite the fact that the association claims to be nonpartisan and non-ideological and all that kind of stuff. Ely was one of the founders and was the first secretary of the association, and his economics, as I've already sort of alluded to a little while ago, were basically what would later be referred to as third way, and in this way would have some parallels with the economic parts of fascism. Ely once said, quote, I condemn alike that individualism that would allow the state no room for industrial activity and that socialism which would absorb in the state the functions of the individual, end quote. So this idea that you're some sort of middle way between outright socialism, communism, and free market. Also, by the way, from what I've seen, it appears that Ely was some sort of Anglo-Saxonist racialist as well, and a supporter of some degree of eugenics policies, as were many leading progressive intellectuals of this time period, though I can't claim to have done enough research on Ely at this recording anyway, to say in detail what exactly his beliefs were on those things. The end of the 19th century was a major time for professionalization, so-called, of academic disciplines in the U.S., as it was for much of the Western world at the time. There are both positive and negative side effects of this overall trend, and I might cover some of the history of this overall movement and trend and some of the specific associations, like the American Economics Association, the American Historical Association, and so forth. Sometime in the future, we'll see. Wilson's PhD dissertation was entitled Congressional Government, and it would be published in 1885 by a major publisher, Houghton Mifflin. To a large extent, this book was built upon essays he'd written over the years, and it got good reviews from fellow academics when it came out. The book criticized the American political system for having way too much in the way of checks and balances, and I'm sure I'll dig into this book quite a bit in the next part of this series. Or I should say, the part after next. The same day that Wilson signed the contract in late 1884 with Houghton Mifflin to publish Congressional Government, he met with Martha Carey Thomas and James E. Rhodes, who were setting up a women's college at Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Even though Wilson had not completed his PhD yet, they were already offering him a teaching position there at $1,200 per year. Wilson definitely seems to have had mixed feelings about this, and he worried that teaching at a women's college might kind of hamper his academic career. His fiancée, Ellen, also had concerns about this, and she wrote to Wilson, quote, Do you think there is much reputation to be made in a girl's school? Can you be content to serve in that sort of institution? End quote. Ellen also thought Wilson's working under a female dean might be a problem, and she wrote about this, quote, It seems so unnatural, so jarring to one's sense of the fitness of things, so absurd, too, end quote. Now, Wilson's responses to these sorts of things, he said he'd rather be teaching men, but that it still was a pretty good job, especially for someone right out of grad school without 
technically having finished a PhD yet, with no prior teaching experience, and that, most importantly, his teaching income would provide him a way to make a living while he worked on his writing, which definitely was his real priority. And so when the Bryn Mawr administration upped their offer to $1,500 per year, Wilson signed a two-year contract to teach there. Wilson actually got some better job offers after congressional government was published and received good reviews, but he'd already signed with Bryn Mawr, and under the advice of his father, he decided not to try to break out of that contract. With a steady job lined up, Wilson felt like he could go ahead and get married, and so on June 24, 1885, Woodrow Wilson married Ellen Louise Axon. Both of their fathers, as mentioned last episode, were Presbyterian ministers, and they shared the duties of the marriage ceremony between them. I guess kind of like a tag-team wedding ceremony. The newlyweds had an almost two-month honeymoon near Asheville, North Carolina, during which Ellen got pregnant, and after which they set off for Pennsylvania for Wilson to take his position at Bryn Mawr. At this point, like I said, he still technically hadn't finished all the requirements for his doctorate. At Bryn Mawr, economics, history, and political science were all combined into one department, which Wilson would be the head of. By all accounts, even though teaching wasn't really his priority at the time, it seems that Wilson did have a knack for teaching and was well-liked by his students for the most part. One of his Bryn Mawr students recalled his teaching as follows, quote, He always entered the classroom smiling and animated and always in a good humor. His lectures were fascinating and held me spellbound. Each was an almost perfect little essay in itself, well-rounded and with a distinct literary style. End quote. Most of the students at Bryn Mawr who said nice things about Wilson were undergrads, because most of his students were undergraduates. But the women who were his graduate students, at the time Bryn Mawr was the only college in the U.S. where a woman could earn a Ph.D., his graduate students soon started to dislike him, it seems, and the feeling seems to have been mutual. Wilson seems to have felt that they weren't as interesting as male graduate students would have been, and the female graduate students seem to have picked up on this vibe and to have gotten the impression that Wilson had greater ambitions and would rather be somewhere else, that he was really looking to move on to a more prestigious male university as soon as possible. Looking at some of the statements of the handful of female grad students who worked with Wilson during this time, one gets the impression that they felt he was condescending and patronizing towards them. So yeah, basically the rub seems to be the undergrad students who just took his lecture courses found him to be engaging and good at that sort of thing, but the ones who had to actually work and interact with him on a larger and more direct basis were a bit put off by him. To his wife, Wilson wrote, quote, I'm tired of carrying female fellows on my shoulders. When I think of you, my little wife, I love this college for women, because you are a woman. But when I think only of myself, I hate the place, very cordially. End quote. During his second semester at Bryn Mawr, Wilson began working on writing a comparative political science textbook that would be entitled simply, The State. And again, we'll talk about that more in the episode after next. Now, regardless of his attitude towards teaching at a women's college, the evidence is that Wilson did work hard at Bryn Mawr, did design and teach courses on a very wide variety of topics, and this included several courses on various aspects of European history, as well as American history. The notes for this course, by the way, would serve as the basis for his later U.S. history book, Division and Reunion. And he also created political science courses such as The History, Functions, and Origins of Government. Meanwhile, Wilson still hadn't quite finished his Ph.D. degree with Johns Hopkins. Henry Baxter Adams had approved congressional government as Wilson's dissertation, and Adams had waived the German language requirement for a Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins, that Wilson never did. And really, Adams and... The other folks involved at Johns Hopkins had made a lot of bends to the rules for Woodrow Wilson. But the one thing on which they wouldn't budge was that Wilson still had to take his written exams. Now, by this point in time, Wilson's wife was getting pretty late in her pregnancy, and Wilson decided that he would send his wife down to stay with family in Georgia to give birth to their child while he stayed alone at Bryn Mawr in order to study and prepare for his exams. So in April of 1886, Wilson traveled with his very pregnant wife to Washington, D.C., and there put her on a train down to Georgia. 
Wilson took the opportunity to explore D.C. for the first time. Ellen, meanwhile, arrived in Gainesville, Georgia that night and gave birth to their first child, a daughter they named Margaret, the following morning. So Wilson wrapped up spring semester courses while also preparing for his exams while his wife and newborn daughter are down in Georgia. And once Wilson finished his spring courses at Bryn Mawr, he traveled to Baltimore, and in late May, he passed his exams and officially earned his PhD. A few weeks after that, he arrived in Georgia to meet his now two-month-old daughter for the first time. At the end of the summer, the Wilsons returned to Pennsylvania, and Wilson taught another year at Bryn Mawr while continuing to work on writing the state. The following August, Ellen gave birth to a second child, another daughter, whom they named Jessie, after Wilson's mother. Speaking of Wilson's mother, she'd been suffering health issues for a while, and she died in April of 1888. Around this time, Wilson began doing some part-time lecturing at Johns Hopkins to supplement his income from Bryn Mawr. And meanwhile, he began looking to get out of his Bryn Mawr contract as soon as possible. And he seized upon the fact that he still hadn't gotten an assistant, even though his contract said he'd get one, quote-unquote, as soon as practicable. The trustees of Bryn Mawr initially wanted to fight Wilson's departing, and Martha Carey Thomas would hold a grudge against Wilson from then on. But Dr. Rhodes decided to let Wilson go without a fight, and the two of them left on good terms. Wilson was already lining up what he considered a much better position. In September of 1888, Wilson and his family moved up to Middletown, Connecticut, so that Wilson could take a position teaching at Wesleyan University. Wesleyan was offering him a $2,500 per year salary, which was very good money in the 1880s, plus periodic leaves of absence so that he could continue to lecture at Johns Hopkins from time to time and so that he could work on his writings. At Wesleyan, Wilson would teach only upperclassmen, and his main course would be called Histories of England and France. And basically, it was an overview of Western European history after the fall of the Roman Empire. He also taught political economy there, no doubt sharing a lot of the wisdom he had absorbed from Richard Ely. According to his brother-in-law, Stockton Axon, who took a couple of Wilson's classes, Wilson taught his students that the U.S. Constitution was, quote, not merely a document written down on paper, but is a living and organic thing, which, like all living organisms, grows and adapts itself to the circumstances of its environment. End quote. Wilson explained Southern secessionism as being caused by Southerners' refusal to allow their views of the Constitution to evolve. And Axon says that Wilson's take on Southern secession was, quote, in the matter of secession, the South was absolutely right from the point of view of a lawyer, but quite wrong from the point of view of a statesman, end quote. Wilson got involved with football at Wesleyan and even did some coaching there. Overall, he seems to have been pretty happy at Wesleyan, certainly much more so than he was at Bryn Mawr, though he had a desire to go somewhere even more prestigious, namely Princeton. Wilson continued to lecture periodically at Johns Hopkins, where one of his students was a young man named Frederick Jackson Turner, who in the 1890s would become famous as an American historian with his essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History. And Wilson and Turner shared some similar views about American history and corresponded off and on a little bit while Wilson was an academic. In the fall of 1889, Wilson's second book, which I mentioned him starting while he was still at Bryn Mawr, which was entitled simply The State, was published. It was a 700-page work of comparative political science covering the American and European political systems. The book was widely adopted as a textbook in many colleges and universities, and it was translated into several languages and reprinted multiple times during Wilson's lifetime. It mostly got positive reviews from what I can tell, but Wilson seems to have been less than super enthusiastic about it because it was a textbook, and as such, he seems to have felt during and after the writing of it that it simply wasn't all that interesting. So, to a friend who taught at the University of Virginia, for example, he wrote of it, quote, A fact book is always a plebeian among books, and it is a fact book, but a great deal has gone out of me into it. Nonetheless, and I hope you will receive it kindly on that account. End quote. Now, I'm 
not enough of a masochist to read a 700-page dry textbook on political science written by Woodrow Wilson, but I am reading parts and segments of it in preparation for that episode where I'm going to go into the content of Wilson's academic work. And from what I've seen so far, I will agree that for the most part, it's a pretty boring, dry book. But I wouldn't call it a fact book in the sense of, you know, it doesn't contain any ideological biases, because it clearly contains a version of Wilson's German historicism-influenced progressive view of history and politics. Now, around the time that Wilson's book The State came out, in October of 1889, Ellen gave birth to the Wilson's third daughter, whom they named Eleanor and whom they would typically call Nellie or Nell. Even though the Wilsons were fairly content at Wesleyan, Woodrow was still a bit restless for something better career-wise, and it just so happened that he had some benefactors at Princeton who were planning to start a school of political science there, and they already had Wilson in mind to be its chairman. In February of 1890, the Princeton Board of Trustees agreed to do this and offered Wilson a $3,000 per year salary to take the position. Wesleyan counteroffered him $3,500 per year to stay there. But Wilson really, really wanted to go teach at Princeton. So when Princeton agreed to also let him keep doing his lectures at Johns Hopkins, he returned to Princeton, this time as a faculty member. The College of New Jersey, as Princeton was still officially called in 1890, was still very, very small by modern-day standards, only 650 students and 40 faculty. As of this recording, according to Wikipedia, Princeton has over 8,000 students and over 1,000 academic staff, whatever that means. I guess it includes faculty, but I don't know what else. And when Wilson came in as a faculty member at Princeton, it was still not officially a university at all, like Harvard, Yale, or Johns Hopkins were by that time. And there actually were those among the board of trustees who wanted to keep it that way and who wanted to resist change. Now, it's the more progressive in the broad sense of the word trustees and administrators who wanted to bring in people like Wilson to modernize Princeton and make it more like those universities. A. Scott Berg says that, quote, Princeton in the Gilded Age became a playground for sons of the wealthy, end quote. Basically, it was a place where young men went to get a college degree that held some elitist cachet, but which wasn't taken as seriously academically as, say, a degree from Harvard or from Johns Hopkins. At Princeton, Wilson became one of the most popular professors, widely considered among the best, if not the best, at the entire school. In fact, he attracted enough students to his classes that by his second year, his classes had to be conducted in the chapel in order to fit everybody. A former student who eventually became one of Wilson's colleagues said of his teaching, quote, I consider Wilson the greatest classroom lecturer I have ever heard. Wilson held his students spellbound, and at the close of a lecture, they would often cheer him, not for the purpose of bootlicking, but because they just could not help it. End quote. He was frequently voted the most popular professor by undergraduates. For a while, he continued to teach a little bit from time to time at Johns Hopkins, and also taught some at the New York Law School as well. But his priority now is definitely Princeton, and he wanted to do what he could to get its academic standards up, and to get it more prestige and get it to be a university. And this was a quest that he would continue when he eventually became president of the college. While he was a professor at Princeton, Wilson did more writing than at any other point in his career. He published lots of essays, articles, and reviews in various publications, including scholarly ones, but also in kind of serious popular venues, places like the Atlantic Monthly. In 1891, he began serious work on what would become Division and Reunion, his history of the United States from 1829 to 1889 basically from Andrew Jackson's presidency through to his present time period. Though he had actually signed the contract for the book and begun some preliminary work on it a couple years earlier. 
Division and Reunion ended up being a bit over 300 pages long and was published in the spring of 1893. And again, it got good reviews and was quickly adopted in many colleges and universities, and it would be reprinted multiple times. One of those who positively reviewed the book soon after it was published was Theodore Roosevelt, who published a pretty positive review of it in the Educational Journal. Frederick Jackson Turner was also among those who gave it a good review. As Division and Reunion was being published and being favorably reviewed, Wilson was already starting to work on a larger, more comprehensive history that would end up being called A History of the American People though it would be a while before he finished that one. Wilson also was becoming in demand as a speaker and lecturer, you know, kind of like a guest speaker, that sort of thing, and eventually he began traveling around the country, speaking on various historical and political topics at colleges and universities and other venues. And one of the things this did, aside from giving him a lot of experience at public speaking in a variety of different venues, was it greatly expanded his knowledge of the United States, because he traveled to various areas he had never been to before. With all these things going on, Wilson became known throughout American academia as a real rising star, and several universities, including the University of Virginia and the University of Illinois, offered him the presidency of their institution. Princeton periodically gave Wilson raises just to keep him there, and by about 1895-1896, he was the highest-paid professor at Princeton. The Wilsons ended up building kind of their dream house, a seven-bedroom, three-bathroom, in Tudor Revival style, which they built on a half-acre on Library Place, on a $7,000 budget, which the family then moved into when it was completed in early 1896. Just a few months after this, In May of 1896, Wilson experienced pain in his right arm, along with his hand freezing up on him. He saw a doctor about it, and the doctor thought it wasn't a big deal. But it's pretty obvious now, knowing the symptoms that he described and what Wilson would experience later in life, that this was actually a small stroke. And Wilson was only in his late 30s at the time. The doctor that Wilson saw thought that Wilson was just a bit overworked and was experiencing hand and arm cramps from having done too much writing, and he recommended that Wilson just needed a bit of rest. And so Wilson decided to take a trip. Coincidentally, a wealthy neighbor who liked the Wilsons very much had recently offered to pay for them to take a trip to Britain. Mrs. Wilson opted to stay home with the children, but after Wilson's little health issue and the doctor saying he needed rest, she now insisted that Woodrow should go on the trip alone. And so he traveled to the UK and spent nine weeks traveling around England and Scotland by bike and train. He would return to the British Isles again in the summer of 1889, and this trip would also include some time in Ireland. And in the 1899 trip, again, the trip was paid for by a wealthy benefactor, a different one this time. And part of the 1899 trip's purpose was supposed to be to try to find a British professor who was knowledgeable in colonial administration to try to recruit such a professor to come teach at Princeton so that Princetonians could learn how to run a global empire. Now that the U.S. by 1899 had acquired things like Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, Hawaii, and so forth, and was poised to grab who knew what else, and was basically following the British into becoming a global Anglo-Saxonist empire. And on that 1899 trip, Wilson did not find such a professor to bring to Princeton, and he doesn't seem to have looked very hard. But soon after Wilson returned from his 1896 trip, That fall, Princeton was preparing for the college's 150th anniversary of its founding. In October, there would be a huge three-day celebration event. Wilson, as the most celebrated speaker on campus, was asked to give a sort of centerpiece keynote address, which he did. It was entitled, Princeton in the Nation's Service, and this would become Princeton's unofficial motto. The speech was 8,000 words long, and from the excerpts I've read of it, it mostly seems to be nice-sounding platitudes about education being important to training the nation's leaders, that sort of thing, but it apparently was very well received. Grover Cleveland, who at the time was in the final stretch of his second term as President of the United States, actually attended part of the celebration, 
though I don't think he was present for Wilson's speech. Cleveland apparently really enjoyed not just the college, but the town of Princeton. And we know this because he would actually purchase a home in Princeton and move there after he left the White House the next spring. It was at the end of this celebration that it was announced officially that the College of New Jersey would from that day forward officially be known as Princeton University. 1896 was also a presidential election year, and it would be one of those really important, traumatic, turning point shift of party system elections that happens once every generation or two in American history. And you can look up my mini-series, Party Systems in American History, that I did a while ago for a bit more on this whole idea of what party systems are and how they seem to shift about once every generation or two. At the time, mid-1890s, there was an economic depression going on that had been rolling since near the beginning of Cleveland's second term in 1893. This depression was, by most measures, the worst depression in American history up to that point, and I do not believe it would be surpassed until the Great Depression in the 1930s. There was a new force rising in American politics at the time known as populism, which largely represented the grievances of disgruntled farmers who felt they were being cheated in the American political and economic system. Populism had some overlap in terms of ideology with progressivism, mainly in terms of wanting a larger, more powerful federal government in the U.S. that would intervene more in domestic and economic affairs. But the two ideologies, populism and progressivism, were separate things. Populism became a major political force first in the 1890s. Progressivism was an intellectual force in academic and some media circles during that time, but progressivism wouldn't become a big thing in practical politics until the first couple decades of the 20th century. In the 1896 election, a charismatic young populist from Nebraska named William Jennings Bryan managed to get the presidential nomination of both the Populist Party and the Democratic Party. Though the populists, both the ones in the Populist Party and the populists who were inside the Democratic Party, had a whole platform of issues and reforms that they were running on, in the 1896 election, they primarily became associated with the issue of the basis of the nation's monetary system. At the time, the U.S. was still on the gold standard, in which the dollar was supposed to be backed by gold, at the ratio of $20 an ounce. Populists actually wanted to create inflation because they believed, incorrectly in my opinion, that inflation would help the nation's farmers. And so they were running on what they called bimetallism, which meant they wanted to back the dollar with both gold and silver, which would, of course, increase the money supply and create inflation. This stance, plus many other economic interventionist stances they held, such as creating an income tax and nationalizing various types of infrastructure, such as railroads, these things put the populace at odds with the traditional Grover Cleveland-style Democrats, also known as Bourbon Democrats at the time, which is really what the Democratic Party had been, for the most part, since its creation in the 1820s. These traditional Democrats were relatively laissez-faire, they were for small government, fairly free market economic policies, low taxes, and also for hard money, meaning keeping the gold standard and not creating inflation. So there was this internal battle for the future of the Democratic Party taking place in 1896, and the nomination of William Jennings Bryan as the Democratic Party's nominee was a big victory for the populists over the old school Democrats. The Republican candidate in 1896 was William McKinley of Ohio, whose platform included sticking to the gold standard, and he was able to achieve a very decisive victory over Bryan in the general election. Both Republicans and also the non-populist Democrats, meaning the Bourbon Democrats, or as they were sometimes called at the time, Gold Democrats, saw Bryan as a radical threat. They basically saw him as, you know, not much different from, like, a communist. Some gold Democrats actually held their nose and voted for the Republican candidate William McKinley as the lesser of two evils in that election, and this is probably what gave McKinley such a big margin of victory in the election. These Bourbon Democrats who voted for McKinley basically decided that he was 
the much more free market candidate other than perhaps the issue of the protectionist tariff relative to Bryan. Other gold Democrats supported a splinter breakoff faction of the Democratic Party, which was made up of unrepentant gold bourbon, you know, Grover Cleveland style Democrats who couldn't vote for Bryan, but could not bring themselves to actually vote Republican. This splinter group called themselves the National Democrats, and they put up Illinois Senator John Palmer for president and Kentucky Governor Simon Bolivar Buckner for vice president. And you could make a strong case that this ticket, the so-called National Democrat ticket, was the most libertarian option if you were going to vote in the 1896 election. The National Democratic ticket did pretty well for a minor party that was just created out of scratch, but still only earned less than 1% of the vote. Now, here's the really interesting thing about this National Democratic Party ticket and how this circles back to Woodrow Wilson. According to A. Scott Berg, in the 1896 election, Woodrow Wilson supported and voted for John Palmer's National Democratic ticket. Which, again, according to me, and also if memory serves to Murray Rothbard, this ticket was the most libertarian option if you were voting for president in 1896. Now, how do you explain this? How do you explain Woodrow Wilson voting for the most free market libertarian option in 1896? So far, I've not come across any detailed primary source material where Wilson is explaining this choice though maybe there's something floating around out there. But if I had to speculate, I'd say that Wilson, though he gradually became a progressive, started off initially as a relatively traditional mid-19th century American Democrat, which meant, for the most part, a bourbon Democrat. And that also, as a young man, he was a fan of English classical liberal politicians. And as of 1896, he was still kind of in between his beginning point from those sorts of politics, and his end point with the progressive politics he'd become associated with by the time that he entered political office. He also seems to have been put off a bit by populism and by Bryan, and this in part has to do with one of the differences overall between populism and progressivism, or maybe I should say several of them. Among other things, the populists represented rural and farming interests, while progressives represented more urban and industrial interests. And there was also an important difference in the way populists, as opposed to progressives, thought about and saw themselves when it came to representation. The populists always seemed to have genuinely tried to represent what they thought the common man actually wanted. So, more in the sense of democracy that most people think of when they think of what democracy and representation are supposed to mean. By contrast, progressives tended to see things differently. They tried to do what they thought was best for the common man, whether it actually was what the common man was asking for or not. A sort of elitist, Rousseauian understanding of quote-unquote democracy. And so this difference may have been part of why Wilson had mixed feelings about populism, even though ideologically he lined up with a fair amount of it, you know, bigger government, more economic regulation and income tax. These are all things that Wilson would support and help to foster once he got into politics. And I think the last thing to say in explaining why Wilson would vote for the National Democrats in 1896 is that Wilson was too much of a Democratic Party man to actually vote Republican. So he must have seen voting for the National Democratic ticket in 1896 as the best way to try to resolve the tensions between his Democratic Party loyalties, his lingering tenuous ties to the traditional stances of that party, his unease with Bryan and populism, and his almost instinctive hostility to the Republican Party. So yes, Woodrow Wilson, a man often ranked by libertarians as the worst president in U.S. history, and if he's not ranked by them as the worst, he's usually at least in the two or three worst, Woodrow Wilson actually voted for what you can make a very strong case was the most libertarian option in 1896. The man who would preside over the creation of the Federal Reserve, the man who would preside over what I would characterize as the beginning of the end of the gold standard, 
in that regard, the man who presided over the creation of the federal income tax, all these other status measures we could list off that Wilson presided over. In 1896, he voted for a ticket that stood for hard money and opposed the creation of things like an income tax and supported pretty laissez-faire economic policies. It does at least, I think, make a little bit of sense in the context of the time period and in the context of Wilson's political evolution, even if it is super ironic in light of what Wilson would ultimately do and become as president of the United States a few decades later. When the Spanish-American War occurred in 1898, Wilson's position on it seems to have been a bit mixed. He seems to have opposed starting it in the first place and was not on board with the hopped-up jingoism of people like Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt. But he wasn't really a principled anti-war or anti-interventionist type. And once the nation went to war, he basically supported the U.S. government trying to use the war to do good in the world. Basically, he was articulating an early version of what we would think of today as liberal interventionism in foreign policy— this notion that would come to characterize the Democratic Party establishment ever since. This ideology that often talks in very dovish and humanitarian-sounding words, but that usually supports war as long as it can be explained in some nice-sounding way. Spreading freedom and democracy, helping the oppressed, uplifting the downtrodden, or whatever. So, for example, during the time period of the war, Wilson wrote, quote, We did not enter upon a war of conquest. We had neither dreamed of nor desired victories at the ends of the earth. It was for us a war begun without calculations, upon an impulse of humane indignation and pity. So he was basically buying the nonsense that it was all about just helping the poor oppressed Cubans. A statement like that could easily have been made by Barack Obama about one of the wars during his presidency. Now, a little bit later on, Wilson wrote, quote, No doubt the war pleases the Jingos, but any war would please them. And this war was undertaken, not just because war is pleasing, but because this particular war was just, and indeed inevitable. And we have not made ourselves a nation of Jingos by undertaking it. End quote. So Wilson was, like all later liberal interventionists, drawing a distinction between himself and the sort of vulgar jingos, or in modern terms, maybe the neocons. But the distinction has more to do with rhetoric and supposed motivations than it does with actual policy. Because when it comes to actual policy, he ends up ultimately lining up with the jingos anyway. By 1900, in some of his speeches, Wilson was talking about America using its newfound global influence to try to spread freedom and democracy in far-off parts of the globe. Over the next few years, Wilson began to make more and more explicit references to his own views on contemporary political issues, including domestic policy. More and more, he was clearly linking his progressive Hegelian view of history, and especially American history, to contemporary questions, for example, calling for the Constitution to be as elastically interpreted as necessary, and also more and more supporting the idea of a very broad definition of the powers of the executive branch in general, and the presidency in particular. Earlier, he had emphasized making changes to and reforming and empowering the Congress as the way to try and fix what he thought was wrong with the American system. More and more by this point, he's focusing on the presidency. Interestingly, at a 1902 speech, he even linked his elastic interpretation of the Constitution's meaning to the issue of gun control, saying that, quote, The accumulation of arms and the bearing of concealed weapons may be forbidden constitutionally, end quote, using the loose interpretation of the text of the Constitution, in this case, the Bill of Rights. So he's saying, oh yeah, you can put in strict gun control and it doesn't conflict with the Bill of Rights. Now, two interesting points here I'll point out. First, while gun control wasn't really a front-burner issue nationally, during Wilson's presidency. During World War I, he would use this idea of very loosely interpreting the Constitution, and in particular, loosely interpreting what the Bill of Rights means, 
in order to justify his blatant violations of the Bill of Rights, such as locking people up for saying and writing things the government doesn't like, despite the First Amendment's very clear meaning on this. And a majority on the Supreme Court at the time would agree with this loose interpretation of what the First Amendment means. So the same guy who wants to loosely interpret the Second Amendment also wants to very creatively interpret the First Amendment. These things are not unrelated. And the second thing I'll point out is that Wilson's stance on gun control, which is basically that the Second Amendment was about the states collectively maintaining militias and nothing at all to do with an individual right to own weapons. This is the same interpretation of the Second Amendment that is put forth by anti-gun progressives who advocate gun control to this day. So yet another thing we can trace back in large part to Woodrow Wilson. Now, during the same time that Wilson was speaking out increasingly openly on modern-day political questions, he was also getting more deeply involved in university politics at Princeton. In 1897, he tried to get Frederick Jackson Turner, who by that point was the most prominent rising star in the American historical profession, thanks to his essay, The Significance of the Frontier in American History. Wilson's trying to get him into the history department at Princeton, but several powerful people in the university administration and among the trustees basically blocked it from happening. Ultimately, Wilson found out that the main reason wasn't anything to do with Turner's stance on historical or political issues, but simply that Turner was a Unitarian, and the conservative Presbyterians who dominated Princeton just couldn't stand to hire a Unitarian. Wilson was very put off by this, and he even briefly considered leaving Princeton, but still he felt too attached to the place to walk out, despite having offers from a bunch of leading universities, some of them including significant pay raises. And while Wilson didn't take any of these offers up, he did kind of let it be known to friendly people at Princeton that he was at least considering his options. And this move ultimately paid off. The most pro-Wilson people at Princeton among the university administration and trustees, as well as some of the more influential and deep-pocketed alumni, really wanted to figure out a way to keep Wilson at Princeton. One of those who was pushing to do anything to keep Wilson at Princeton was Cyrus McCormick Jr., who was at the time a Princeton trustee and had been a classmate of Wilson's. McCormick's father, Cyrus McCormick Sr., was an inventor and businessman who had developed a mechanical reaping machine and had founded the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company, through which he had made a giant fortune. When Sr. died in the 1880s, Jr. took over as head of the company. And later, in 1902, Cyrus McCormick Jr. would make a deal with J.P. Morgan and four other harvesting machine companies to merge together into what became known as International Harvester. So very much a power elite guy. Another Wilson supporter who had been a classmate of his previously was a banker named Cornelius C. Cooler. And this is a guy, I haven't been able to find too much out on him as of this recording, other than he was a wealthy banker. And a third major supporter was yet another wealthy alumni, I believe also a trustee at the time, who had been a classmate of Wilson's, a guy named Cleveland H. Dodge, who was heir and president of the Phelps Dodge Mining Company, and who would later become an advisor to and financial backer of Wilson during Wilson's political career. In the spring of 1898, these three men led a group that included five other Wilson supporters who all pitched in together to put together an extra $2,500 per year stipend to pay Wilson on top of his regular salary. Provided he stay at Princeton, focus all of his work on Princeton, and stop his teaching at other universities like Johns Hopkins. Now, when you combine Wilson's already, you know, highest faculty salary at the university with an extra $2,500 per year stipend, and this is huge money. I mean, it's not, you know, like the wealth of Cyrus McCorbick Jr. or Cleveland Dodge, but this is very good money in 1880s dollars. So not surprisingly, Wilson took their offer. It's interesting to note, by the way, as you've probably already noticed, as it has probably already occurred to you as you're listening, that Wilson, by going to Princeton University and then working there, ended up connected to so many power elite people in various ways 
that he likely would never have run into and developed associations and friendships and connections with. People from other parts of the country who came from much higher social strata than he did. Because Wilson basically came from a modest kind of upper middle class background. His father was a Presbyterian minister in the South. And yet he's able to make all these connections through Princeton to all these super elite people. These powerful friends and benefactors would grease the wheels for Wilson during his academic career, and many of these same individuals would do the same for his political career once he began it. Because of this deal, Wilson ended up with even more time and freedom that allowed him to write even more, and to write more freely, than ever. In 1902, Wilson's History of the American People was published by Harper and Brothers as a five-volume set. It sold well and was reprinted multiple times, though Wilson himself was kind of disappointed with it, because apparently it wasn't the book he had hoped it would become, and he seems to have felt that perhaps its analysis wasn't as deep or as original as what he would have liked to do. He wrote of the book, quote, I am only a writer of history, a fellow who merely tried to tell the story, and is not infallible on dates, End quote. In June of 1902, the Princeton Board of Trustees, which had had some recent shakeups in it, including the addition of former president and now Princeton resident Grover Cleveland, motivated by a desire to raise Princeton's academic standing among American universities, which still at the time wasn't really first tier, voted unanimously for Woodrow Wilson to become president of Princeton University. Again, McCormick, Dodge, and Kuhler were key in getting this done. Wilson would become Princeton's 13th president, and the first in its history who was not an ordained minister. The presidency of Princeton University meant that Wilson became a major spokesman and figurehead of education in America at the precise time that progressivism was becoming a major force in politics, and of course, progressives were generally big supporters of so-called education, as a means to achieve many of their goals. So that's where we'll leave it for this episode. Next time we'll cover Wilson's years as president of Princeton University, which ran from 1902 to 1910, and were a very important transitional phase in his career, kind of a midway point between just being an academic political scientist and historian to becoming a real-world practical politician. enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either 
Patreon, or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.